To look to the future, we must look into the past. We are in an information age which can be both good and bad. We are bombarded on the daily with concerns about the state of our planet, economy and public services, which can make us feel more despondent and nihilistic about our future. We can both celebrate and grieve for the changes that new technologies will bring. But in these times of uncertainty, the only thing we can be certain about is uncertainty. And as the world changes, so must we. My youngest is 24 and I encouraged her not to learn to code because I thought of it as the typing of the future. Do you know, there was like, there were typing pools when I first joined the workforce. And again, all these sort of rooms full of people typing. And I, I looked at code even 10 years ago, probably, and went, well, code's going that way. So the no-code stuff, the object-oriented programming, you could see where it was going. And so, yeah, I'm not encouraging my friends to get their kids to learn to code. I think it's going to be a dead end. On this episode of the podcast, I bring on Melissa Clark Reynolds, futurist, company director, and officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for Services to Technology. Melissa is a thought leader and a game changer, always at the edge of technological innovations. She uses her experience and knowledge about human behavior and technology to guide companies and people to a better future. Kia ora koutou, and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighborhood pediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by MedWorld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. really excited to talk to you, Melissa. So one of the things that you are is a futurist amongst many others. So when I was a kid growing up, so I'm 29, and when I was a kid, the teachers and the guidance counsellors, they would all say, the world is your oyster. The world's changing so much. It's so exciting. There are going to be jobs in the future when you're in the workforce that don't exist yet. And everything's exciting. We don't know what you could be doing, but it'll be something amazing. And I guess the changes that I've seen in my adulthood in terms of where things are going, uh, the job market, the evolution of AI, is I guess I wonder for the younger groups, I'm talking about Gen Zs and Gen Alpha, is are there going to be many jobs today that people expect to be around to actually no longer be around? Do you think that you're going to go into university to study this, study engineering or study medicine or whatever, and then actually on the other even within that lifetime on the other side, that job not existing anymore. And I kind of want to understand from your point of view, like how do you see the future in AI, the job market, the economy, all of these sort of big topics that we're talking about? Well, I'm 59, right? So so that's like a whole generation different. And what I found interesting is that when I was at school, we had very traditional vocational guidance counselling. Um, I was blonde. I spoke a couple of languages. They thought I should be an air hostess. That's what they called Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> and then when I was like, you know what, I'm really good at math. I really like math. They suggested that quantity surveying might be good for me. 
And I'm really grateful I didn't do either of them. Both very useful careers. And interestingly, both careers that still exist, even though we now call them stewards, and it's a lot more open than just kind of you're pretty and you can talk, which was sort of the guidance. But I look back and I haven't had a job that existed when I was in high school. So I was always an outliner. I, in my last year at school, which was 1979, I wanted to study how to code. And at my all-girls school, in that final year 13, maths wasn't taught because it wasn't really a girl's subject. And so I got bussed to the local boys' school where they did teach coding for the first time that year. And can, for, for context, right, coding back then was literally like a piece of paper and pen, right? Pretty much. It was a knitting needle, so I had an advantage over the boys. <laughs> <laughs> it was a knitting needle and cardboard with holes in it. And so we, I was in Masterton, and we didn't have a computer in the town, as far as I knew. And so we used to mail these punch cards that we'd made into IBM and Wellington and a self-addressed envelope and they would mail them back to us <laughs> and yeah it seemed pretty rudimentary we learned basic and later COBOL and then we got to go on a field trip to town and we went to in a bus to Wellington and we went to the Ministry of Transport and it had these I don't know if you can imagine I can still see it in my mind long kind of beige linoleum corridors with little offices with windows that opened into the corridor and men in walk shorts smoking. That's my overarching kind of image. I was the only girl on this trip and I was an athlete back then, a triathlete even then, and I was just hungry, right? Imagine being like a teenager athlete, just starving. And the only woman I saw on the whole trip whacked me with a wooden spoon because I took a crispy and a ginger nut. <laughs> and they had this little... So you were actually hungry. I felt actually hungry. And they had this corridor with a woman who had a tea trolley. And they did this pitch to us and they said, basically, if you go to university and do a computer science degree, which was a really new idea, you could get a job here and you could program traffic lights. Getting like inside, and at the time, like, oh my god, this is a yes. Yeah, I thought they were selling it, yeah. And I was just like, you have got to be joking. And no one ever talked to us about things like computer gaming didn't really exist, and being able to do really cool statistical analysis, studied epidemiology, and none of that was discussed at university as something that might be a career if you learned how to use computers. And so. And pretty much, I think, the advice, too, was if you did maths or science, you could go into, for a girl, you could go into occupational therapy was probably the number one thing that my sciencey friends went and did, or physio. There was one girl that I knew that went to med school, but it just wasn't something that's really encouraged. And so you just got to think about how much has changed. And what I see now, coming back to your question about if I was in high school now, what would I be thinking about? I can't believe how lucky I was that I was an outlier, that I was just so different, not just from the girls at school, but the boys at school too. And that I was really curious about where the whole thing might go. And I just saw maths as a language and so, and I liked languages and so coding was just another language. And that took me a really long way. So when I studied epidemiology at my master's level, almost 10 years later, I was still the only person in our class of 150 who knew how to code. 
And that gave me incredible advantages. I was studying in the States uh, as the HIV pandemic was playing out. I was really concerned about whether or not we were capturing our women's symptoms because that was very much seen as a gay disease when it first came out. And so because of that, the definition of the syndrome of AIDS didn't include any women's symptoms of women was a woman was most likely to present with candida with vaginal thrush was the first thing in those days that she was likely to turn up with. And that wasn't on the list of symptoms that got you a, defi a definition diagnosis of AIDS. And because you couldn't get the diagnosis, you couldn't get the treatment. God, amazing, eh? And so that was, on one hand, I was angry a lot of the time. On the other side, it was an incredible time to be alive. And I think that was my 20s. And at the same time... Oh, I wasted my 20s. <laughs> I was fascinated. And so I, I was really lucky because I could code. I got to work on incredible projects and I got paid to work on these amazing National Institute of Health database stuff. Now, it took me into computer gaming, which may seem an odd thing, but those days you had to get, everything was on dial-up. And so it would take me like 12 hours to download a spreadsheet. And oh my God. <laughs> so what I used to do was I used to drink coffee and play SimCity all night because if you tried to drink the daytime, there was too much traffic and your code would drop all the time. So, so what was good about that was later in my career, I thought about what else do I really love to do? And I love to game. And so I ended up founding a gaming studio as well. Now, those were all things like, I may as well be speaking a foreign language, talking to that guidance counsellor in my last year at school who's suggesting, yeah, I still saw quantity surveying, right? And so imagine I said to them, look, I'm going to program actuarial software, which I write up from scratch. I'm going to design machine learning techniques for analysing treatment outcomes. That just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Me? So... Well, let's agree. You are an outliner, right? But and outliers out there now. Right? But there will always be outliers who yeah. will achieve like amazing things, like no matter what, right? So let's ignore you outliers because you'll always do amazing. I guess the question I'm coming from is not about the outliers, it's about the mean, about yeah. the average, right? Uh, because you talk about these things like programming. And I think that there are some people who are concerned that programming uh, programmers specifically i guess ai programmers are programming pro programming themselves out of a job mm -hmm. like in in that in those times right being able to code puts yourself at an advantage but today like it, it you're getting all these no code softwares yeah. you don't need to code to create a website or anything like that so i guess one of my concerns about the education that we've got in terms of what we're telling young people and what we're telling, we're saying that, oh, if you just pursue a career in STEM and nothing else, okay. you will secure a job for you in the future. Like you will secure a comfortable middle-class job as a software pro programmer, computer engineer, whatever. Yeah. And I guess I have concerns that maybe that's not true anymore. Yeah. And I don't know, I think it's not true. And my youngest is 24 and I encourage her not to learn to code because I thought of it as the typing of the future. Do you know, there was like, there were typing pools when I first joined 
the workforce and again all these sort of rooms full of people typing and I, I looked at code even 10 years ago probably and we well, codes going that way so the no code stuff the object-oriented programming you could see where it was going and so yeah I'm not encouraging my friends to get their kids to learn to code but I'm just saying it's I think it's going to be a dead end interestingly though jobs have always come and gone so I'm I got really curious during lockdown about what it was like when the car got rolled out, right? Really big technological change. And I went back and I read all these microfiches of the New York Times in the 1900s, and there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth about the end of jobs. And so in New York, there were lots of people who had jobs as drivers for horses and carts, who were groomsmen, who were saddlers, who were farriers, who did the... the um, horseshoes on horses' feet. There were jobs for kids picking up manure off the streets. Farmers um, farmed in Manhattan and then they would drive hay into the city and sell it. And there was a lot of real deep concern that there was going to be mass unemployment when the car came in. And of course what happened is there was a proliferation of better jobs. So jobs for mechanics, jobs for cleaners, jobs for drivers, jobs for people eventually creating more infrastructure for the car. I'm not in love with the car, but I think it's a really good metaphor for what we're seeing with AI. So to me, what we're seeing is that I believe the people who use AI in daily life will have a much better future in terms of the way that their work runs than those who don't. And I do think that's the new digital divide. And there already is some big digital divides in our society, but that AI or not is a huge digital divide. And then on top of that, the people who are currently being the most disrupted by AI are programmers. So coders using things like uh, like Copilot, what they're seeing is that we're getting between 10 and 50 minutes an hour extra out of a coder now if they do the first draft in AI. And so I go back and I, I've led big teams of software engineers. And when we were faced with doing something we didn't know how to do, almost the first thing we did would be to look into repositories and see if someone else had solved that code before. And so over the last 20 years, there are these big libraries of code, either online or in GitHub or other places where you can go and you can go, oh, how do I solve this? And there's already a, like a bank of code and you can just pick that up and drop it in and then tweak it to meet your data structures. And so AI is perfect for now to get this. Like it couldn't have, AI couldn't have coded 20 years ago because there was no source material for it to go to. But what it can do now is it can go on 100 people have programmed traffic lights before. We hundreds of thousands of people have tried to write a shopping cart before or whatever it is. We don't need to reinvent that. We just pick up the library of code that exists. Now, why it only saves them 10 to 50 minutes an hour is because that code right now still hallucinates. It still tries to point directories that don't exist. But human coders have got bugs too, so it's just buggy. And I'm reading the most fascinating book at the moment about how humans learn and therefore how AI learns. And over time, it will get better and better. And so I think we'll be getting at least an hour extra out of a coder for every hour. They work fairly soon. And then that becomes a commoditized job. And then 
do we need less programmers? Yeah. And then what do the program what do the programmers? Yeah. And so making the transition to becoming an AI prompt engineer, that is where the big growth is. So I track on LinkedIn and my role as a futurist, I track on LinkedIn what new jobs are emerging, what are the kind of like fastest growing names for new jobs, and AI prompt engineer is just growing exponentially. Where do you see AI impacting us like the most as just people? Because I guess in my experience as a doctor, AI and health is still like very, like it's not really used in healthcare at the moment, right? And I think part of it is because the stakes are really high in healthcare. If somebody dies because of AI, that company is probably bust, yeah. right? Like the, the, what is it? Like the responsibility is huge. So there is some talk about AI and things like radiology, so reading CT scans and x-rays. But I guess the problem is that those AI at the moment, I guess, with machine learning. I've only got very rudimentary. I don't do that. Is that the quality of the AI machine that you're creating is highly dependent on the source material, like you say. So it, it, you need to feed it all the patient data and all the patient scans, for example, to be like, okay, well, how many of these actually end up being a pneumonia or end up being a cancer or whatever? And then the machine has to go through all of those images, right? Whereas the argument is that a human with our really amazing brains and cognitions and all the subconscious that we don't really pay attention to is that you can kind of teach a doctor how to pick up a pneumonia by showing them like five or 10 x-rays. Whereas for an AI machine learning thing, you might need to give it like a thousand or 2000 or however many thousand to actually learn yeah. something that's quite simple. Yeah. I think I've just, so I've just read a really interesting study looking at AI picking up tumors versus well-trained specialists. And what was kind of fascinating is those thousands of tens of thousands of images that were fed in, what they discovered along the way was that a lot of the pictures that were actually of tumors had rulers in them. <laughs> And they actually trained the AI to know that if it had a ruler, it's a tumor. Isn't that outrageous? Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> and so the humans hadn't realized that is what the photos they were feeding in had a bias in them, right? And so that's some of the stuff we kind of have to be careful of. Because there's also stuff where you get the AI-generated images, and I've seen reports of this, where there's racial bias yeah. as well, that all like gender bias, the AI nurse will always be like a woman, and oftentimes there'll be a woman of colour, and then the AI doctor will be a white doctor. And you're like, oh, like, it's not great. It's not actually harming somebody, but that's not great, especially if everything becomes AI, then it's always the AI going to be created on some amount of bias because everyone's got bias and no matter who you are everyone's got bias but the ai like we say is dependent on the source material yeah, it's kind of even worse than that so so way back when kodak made film they would take what was called a reference picture and right. so they would calibrate the film to a reference picture ah, and the reference, and that reference picture was a white woman <laughs> okay so film wait when and you come behind and think well look, how could film be biased but film was biased towards 
white women. And then what was really interesting about that is that, of course, those colour biases in the imagery has come into the way that we take digital pictures as well. And so digital pictures have been biased towards white women and the colour tones of white women. <laughs> I had no idea about this. And so Google got into real trouble. Maybe it's a good 10 years ago or so when if you fed African pictures and it came back with gorilla. That was like gutting. It makes me feel sick, right? And that was, again, because the reference pictures, it wasn't so much that, that anyone had ever programmed it to think that. It just didn't have the colour coding that it could use. And so... Thankfully, Google, I have to say, this is a good story about Google. They were horrified and they have done a lot of work. But also, if you think about in the way what we're using with what we call AI at the moment is it is like searching the web for every image it can find or it's searching all the tumor data or whatever it is. All of that data is already deeply biased. So there are a lot more images of white people on the net than there are of Africans or Asians. And so... All right, but that's probably related to the availability of a digital camera and the internet right. in terms of who's got... Exactly. That biases yeah. that. Even before you think about, am I programming a bias? In, yeah. That biases it. So the sort of, you can't separate AI from like social context. So I guess like it's very easy to think, oh, maybe I'm a white guy programmer and I'm programming my biases into the AI. That is partly happening, but partly it's just what the source material is already biased. Yeah. So I guess it's also taking a step back and being like, oh, we're not saying that people are being biased or whatever. Yeah. And everyone's got their own bias, but we just have to, I guess, take it with a pinch of salt and yeah. sort of step back and look at the wider picture, I guess. And so when we go nurse or we go uh, doctor, there are, there are like all the images that already exist have a bias in them that no one programmed. Yeah, this is the thing. Do you see where I'm going? Yeah, yeah. I think quite a bit when we think about AI bias, we assume that it's just, yeah, some nerdy guy sitting in a room putting his own biases in. And, and it's not even, it's kind of... It's way more upstream. It's way more upstream. So coming back to medicine, there's some things that are really cool. So I worked on early stuff, really associating good treatment outcomes, being able to, and I'm talking over 20 years ago, I was using machine learning to be able to predict whether a doctor was any good at their job. Really? Tell me more. Well, because I was running a big insurance company, a workers' comp insurance company, we had almost half a million customers. And out of that, we had almost 30% of New Zealand's ACC claims ran through our data for a couple of years. And so what we were trying to do was to go, how could we really kind of understand which claims you need to intervene in and which ones you don't? Like so, in terms of which ones are a bit fraudulent? Or like a we were less worried about fraud. We were more worried about, so if you back the truck up, in those days, um, ACC would determine cover. So is this a valid claim or yeah, yeah. on every claim? And we worked out that the average claim cost in the 90s was $27.50, but it cost us almost $50 to determine whether that claim was valid or not. Okay. <laughs> so what would you do? We just decided it was better to accept every claim. Yeah. But we had a different question, and this is why AI is so interesting. So our question was, how do we get you back to work faster? ACC's question was, how do we prevent fraud? 
And so the way that you design your data is very different if you're looking for fraud than if you're looking for return to work. And so a bigger picture, right? It's just a different question. Yeah. And so their systems, you had to look at every claim because you didn't want to make sure that you didn't pay someone by mistake, whether it was paying a doctor who was fraudulent or paying a claimant who was fraudulent. Now, we had fraud detection, but we'd studied ACC's data for 10 years by then, and we discovered some stuff around fraud. And so we had programmed the fraud detection, and instead we were really concerned with how do we get you back to work. And we thought, well, if it takes us a week to determine whether your claim was any good or not, that was a wasted week in terms of getting new treatment. And so what we did is we accepted every claim and then we designed early AI type stuff. Machine learning had lots of if-then statements and they're called switches. And so we designed a very fancy switch that basically said if, I don't know, if, a, if it's a right ankle, this is the treatment protocol that normally works. If it's a deviation from that, tell human, you know. Uh, that usually resolves within five days if it's a deviation from that telehuman. And so if it didn't deviate from the normal path, it just came, it just went through our software system, the people got paid, the doctors got paid, it was all fine. But if it deviated, we put a human onto it to manage it. And we quickly discovered that we needed some if-then statements for some doctors too. We had a doctor take the wrong leg off. We had kind of, yeah, Jesus. I know. <laughs> we had one doctor who... Just always seem to put a kind of radicular neuropathy, seem to have a very odd diagnosis that other doctors didn't use. And so we had flags for this kind of stuff. And this is just all in the old prototype kind of way AI worked. And so there's a bunch of that can make lives much easier and faster. And that sort of technology is very simple machine learning, but it's still out there. So that's kind of one bit for medicine. This you could really start to do proper exception management. The other thing is I have one of my dearest friends has a uh, terminal condition, which is the result of a, a mutation, a genetic mutation. And recently the treatment protocol stopped working. And so she was able to send a sample to the US to a company that uses AI to look for more mutations. And so out of that, they discovered that there's a bunch of mutations and they're not all treatable. But we could then identify which one there were treatment protocols for and which ones there weren't. Now, that kind of thing would take a human much longer. And because it's so rare and so unusual, you're only going to find a handful of doctors in the world who know how to deal with this or that have the technology for dealing with it. So for me, I'm quite excited about that sort of use of it where you could really just have one one lab in the world that does this and is able to run these databases and kind of get you an answer back quite quickly. Now, it may not always be the answer you want to hear, but I think there are a bunch of those things. There are areas where, yeah, well-trained doctors are better than the, than the machines, but the machines are getting better and better at it. And also that thing about bias. Where do we think uh, someone's faking it? Where do we have an uh, opinion about someone being a difficult patient or non-compliant? All of that language that turns up in medicine, with, if we could take some of that emotive language out, we can also perhaps see the diagnosis separate from 
all the other assumptions I might have. Do you know, we know in New Zealand that if I'm Pacific Island or Māori, it's much harder for me to get the medication that I might need. Some of that is the cost it takes to get to somewhere. Some of it is feeling whakamaa in the system, so embarrassed about not knowing the language or what's going on. But some of it is doctor bias around compliance, around whether we think that um, these people are actually going to take their medication or not. And if we could take some of that out, we might also improve treatment outcomes. So I'm not saying that we should be all in or all out. Do you know I feel we get a bit binary? It's good or it's bad. And um, I think it's got some great applications. I think it could make lives easier. And I don't want to turn over all over the machine, so I think that would be a terrible thing. I guess that brings me on to my real concern within healthcare, right, is... When you have a resource that is not abundant, when there's scarcity, I feel, the more scarce the resources, the more unequally it's been distributed is how I see things, right? If everyone had good access to healthcare, everyone would be like, yeah, everyone should get good access to healthcare. But I think what we're seeing globally and also very much so in New Zealand, especially within the primary care sector and uh, public hospital secondary um, care is that when the resources are scarce and we're trying to do things to maybe try and distribute it more fairly. People are not against people are against that because they see themselves as losing out because there is scarcity, right? I think if things are abundant, people would be like, yeah, we should redirect more healthcare to lower socioeconomic people. We should be doing this and this, that and other to make it more fair, right? But because there's scarcity, people are not willing as to share as much. And I'm seeing primary care really struggling at the moment. I'm seeing that a lot of GPs are worried about the financial stability of their practice. And I worry that we're going to end up in a stage where, like you have Netflix, and you've got Netflix Premium, Netflix Standard, and you've got the, I don't know if I've introduced that yet, but the Netflix Basic, where you have ads, even though they're always like, we're not going to have ads, but there's going to be like an ads version where I feel like in the future, we're going to end up in the situation where having a GP is going to be a premium. Like it's going to be healthcare premium to be able to afford to have a human, maybe they're augmented by AI because they've got those tools as well, but to have a premium healthcare service, it's, you've got to pay for it. And only then can you have a GP with AI. And then um, yeah, like basic, maybe you have, I don't know, um, there's urging like nurse practitioners and physician assistants, which I think they do serve a role. Um, so you're like healthcare basic. And then for healthcare, like oh, healthcare in, in the medium, and then like the lowest tier of like how the basic, the ad version, right? Is that you don't even get human interaction. You just get an AI machine and because you're in that lowest tier, you don't even get a human to look after you. And I guess that's my concern for the future of healthcare is that we're going to remove the hum- the human aspect. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of, there's even one bit like that, right? Which is yeah. none at all. <laughs> it's none at all. And, you know, about um, me angry at times with our pandemic response, um, people like living on the East Cape where it's predominantly Māori and, you know, really wasn't good access. Or I think about how much the Ministry of Health fought against the self-smear, you know, things that you can... Um, I was so excited the last time I worked for a smear and they gave me the self-smear, but... Oh, yeah, that's a reminder, I need to go do that. (laughs) That was, you know, something that has taken a very long time for the ministry to agree to, despite all of these studies showing that it was really effective. And the people that that affects most are those 
you know, the word is for unbanked, you know, unbanked, you know the people who have no access to healthcare or um, live in some parts of New Zealand, you might have to drive an hour and a half for a smear, or you're just not going to do it, you know, do it with your kids while you do that and um, come back. And I feel like there are some of these things that um, don't need humans to do. Do you know? Like, no. And it's actually, again, thanks back to things like AI in a way, it's multivariate analysis that showed us that you could test do an initial screening for the HPV. So if people have got warp virus, they're more likely to um, changes on their cervix. And so we were testing for the cervical smear, like we were testing for the changes in the, the cells. Yes. But actually you could do a, a cheaper intervention, which is to test for the virus. And it's not to say that you're never gonna have to test for the cells, but we could do that kind of screening first. And so it's something else. high is the um, activity of the screening test with the it, HPV swab? It's pretty good with the HPV swab. But the thing too is you do it more often. Right, right. Yeah. And so because it's so much cheaper and it's easier, right? You just, I mean, you can either mail it to women and they can mail it back. Or like me, I went to my GPs expecting to have the old smear. She gave me the tube and said, off you go. And I said, well, you know what the error rate like? And the error rate's really minimal. You know, so is it pretty much no where your vagina is, you know what I mean? Like you can put a swab in it. Um, so it doesn't require specialised like training like the old smears. Um, I guess where I was getting to with that is I think that there are a whole lot of these interventions like that one that AI can help us to identify and help us to go, oh, this is a proxy for that. Um, yeah, I can just, you know, send a, um, I can pee on it at home. I can send a photo of that and the AI can analyse the photo. You know, there are some of these things that democratise healthcare and um, without needing to get quite to the point of you've got no access. You know, one, I'd like to see it democratise diagnoses and um, valence. So how do we monitor whether things are working for you or not? No, I mean, it's pretty ad hoc. You know, and the next bit is we've been seeing for quite some time these premium GP services, which is an annual subscription. And so... In New Zealand or in overseas? I say, so you might pay 20 or 30 or 100 grand a year. What? I know, but for a family, say, to have an on-call GP. And so... That sounds very... It's very... <laughs> but it's very, you know, back to that kind of what a rich people get. Um, and the idea that they have to... You know, so a doctor might say, well, I'll take on 10 families at, you know, grand each or I'll take on, you know, 100 people at 30 grand each or whatever it is. And so we're seeing those sort of um, concierge doctor services emerge. And so they're not, I guess what I'm saying is they're not fiction or they're not out in the future. They're, 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 they're now. now. Right. And part of what I see of being a futurist is that there's always examples of the future here now. And then if you think about telehealth, you know, telehealth was around for a good 20 years, our pandemic certainly accelerated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so you know, even um, phone consultations weren't things that many doctors were willing to do, you know, with the pandemic and are doing now. So on one hand, you know, I see that there are some um, practitioners who will become super premium, who will earn even more, you know, super premium market. It was like luxury doctoring, right? And then you're going to have commodity doctoring. Um, and I just think those have probably always existed, 
but the gaps between them are going to get bigger and bigger, a bit like they're saying. You know, I have to listen to an ad um, to get my smear done for free, whereas I could get a, you know, 10 bucks to ignore the ad and get my smear or something. God, it's <laughs> horrible. But you can imagine it's not a black mirror kind of mode. You can see how those business models make their way into every business. Yeah, because I, I want to, like, Stan, I don't know that you've necessarily answered this, but this is just what I'm thinking about with healthcare, is that we need to evolve to keep up with the times and the way that I see healthcare. I just, it doesn't feel like it's evolving in the same rate that everyone else out there is evolving. I think one of the things that I've really sort of banged my head against a lot when I'm working in healthcare is that healthcare is so top down yeah. compared to like anybody else that I've talk to who work in other fields, right? Like don't squeeze young people for their innovations in healthcare. We're told to put it like a hip keep your head down, do the work, answer to your boss. Yeah. And the boss will be somebody who's like in their fifties or sixties and they've always done things the way that they've done since they were like a, a new doctor, right? And they don't really care about the IT system or the inner workings of the hospital because they don't see it. They don't have to deal with it. But us as junior doctors, like we do. Yeah. Like, why, for example, if I've if somebody's done a, if we've done a blood test on somebody and I'm like, oh, actually, I want to do this other blood test. So what I have to do is I have to take a piece of paper, put a patient's sticker label on it, tick the things I want to add on, and I have to walk myself over to a Lamson tube and like, no, what do they call like a like a pneumatic tube? Yeah. And put it in the pneumatic tube and that <laughs> pneumatic tube. No, I'm serious. I'm not very nice at hundreds. I'm serious. The pneumatic tube, it's very like art deco kind of vibes, right? Pneumatic tube gets sent to the lab. Somebody in the lab has to like put it and then like oh, what else do they have to do down there? But I'm sure that they've got a complicated thing they have to do to add on the test, right? And I'm like, God, like, is this really what I have to do? And then sometimes I'll be working in the emergency department and I'll walk over to the medic tube and there's no tubes left. So I'm like, oh, okay. So me, an emergency doctor, I've got like any of us or a nurse or whatever. We've got to then like walk ourselves to like somewhere else you know, find another tube, even though we've got like a patient that, you know, be quite sick. So all these things, I'm like, why have we not fixed these systems? And so I guess I'm worried in primary care and other healthcare services, like how can we evolve like with the times? Because I think there are a lot of people who are trying to dig in their heels, be like, we just need to go back to the old ways and um, think that we absolutely need to increase funding to all parts of the healthcare system and specifically to the primary care healthcare system. But like, how else can we evolve? Mm -hmm. And um, you've got telehealth, which is an interesting one. Like I think healthcare, there are some things that are very good for telehealth. So um, health, I think for some people, that's really good. If you have no psychiatrist around or psychologist around because you live rurally, fantastic. But they're also something that you to face. You know, you can't beat that. You know, like we had initially tried to do this podcast recording over the internet, like how annoying that was. And I feel like we wouldn't have had that same connection yeah. as us talking like face-to-face, right? And um, so I practice, I've done a little bit of telehealth, mainly during the pandemic. And for things like, you know, a child who's got an allergy where it's completely based on what happened at the time because the child doesn't have an allergy reaction now, right? Yeah. Like it's really easy to do that. But I guess I wonder about things like, are people doing the studies on things like antibiotic prescriptions? You know, we know that there's a lot of people who get antibiotics that don't need it for a cough, cold or runny nose yeah. or whatever. And I guess I wonder whether new technologies, like there are side effects or unintended consequences like telehealth or like that we're not really like, um, know enough about yet. 
And it's just a shame that we're not using it because the stuff isn't new. Like I said, you know, we're using software like this in the 90s. Um, one of the things that I think are really interesting is like I um, myself this little bit of code to suck all of my blood test results off the PDFs. I mean, PDFs like of blood tests, right? Um, I wrote some code that sucked those out. And so Alan got to go and see a specialist a few years ago. I took the spreadsheet and I showed like years of blood tests and the variation. And then being me, you know, I read some correlation between a whole lot of other stuff. And, I, and he kind of like was like, who did this for you? You know, like, no, I did it. <laughs> And it's like, I can't get anything like this, you know, I have to go through those PDFs myself. And then, and at one point he said to me, you haven't been tested for this. And I'm like, yes, I have. Here's my positive result, you know, state. And then here's what interventions we did. And here's the next test. And, and it was kind of, we were saying, I have to know when the test was done to find out if the test was done. You know, I just thought um, that stuff, it is so easy to automate. And then, you know, into the next level, which is things like precision medicine, which I've been fascinated by for a long time. One of the things I did during the pandemic is I decided to run myself and some mates through every test we could buy on the internet, like every virtual test. Oh, God. <laughs> but it was amazing. And like we did, um, I didn't do the sperm motility tests, but you know, all kinds of stuff. We did lots of really interesting biome tests. So we swapped all our bits and all our orifices and we changed our diet. Who's got the most diverse microbiome? Well, what was fascinating is we knew when someone cheated because we all gave up alcohol except for one guy, clearly, because his microbiome didn't change, you know. All the rest of ours really changed. But what it helped me to see, too, was how individual things like diet is. And I, I got sick of the, you should do this, or you should eat that, or keto's good, or keto's bad, or, you know, whether it's vegetarian, or it's good or bad, or, you know, how interesting the variations of individual humans are in terms of what's in our gut and how it works. And on top of that, what we did is that um, we did the, like the DNA tests that you can buy on the internet. And then I pulled it out and I put it through a, an open source software called Prometheus. And then um, we probably should have thought about it a lot more before we did it. Like we were doing it, it was a bit of fun. And then, what, what kind of yes, the skeletons did you find? Skeletons that you find is that you find things like you know markers for bipolar that we weren't expecting, or genetic markers for um, schizophrenia that we weren't expecting, or for autism that we weren't expecting. For me, what I found utterly fascinating is um, you talked about allergies. So I have an anaphylaxis condition to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. Yeah, nice. oh, that's that was right there in my DNA. And it could have saved me five hospital visits and I don't know how many thousands of dollars. And then the same for kephlosporins was in their uh, sensitivity to them. And yeah, I got administered them in an ED was exactly what was the right thing that Sean wanted chosen to do. And instead of me being in the ED for a couple of hours, I had a week in hospital. Now, the use of some of these kinds of tools, the ways of freeing up resources in the system we get to them do you know but then i guess the thing that i would the counter is that i mean you're well established well established and it's okay i guess like let's say it's you that the dna thing that came back that you've got a predisposition predisposition to schizophrenia or whatever right and but you're a well-established woman who's got resources and i guess imagine if we roll that out and every child has yeah. that, right? Then, because it becomes an ethical dilemma for yeah. us, right? Because we talk about this as well in genetics is that 
um, for example, a parent or a grandparent has Huntington's yeah. um, and the parent is worried that their child is going to get Huntington's. Like we basically say from an ethical standpoint, we're not going to test for it because that child won't develop Huntington's until they're, you know, it's well past childhood usually, right? Um, we don't want, we, we question whether we should be doing this because we don't want to, I don't know, um, destine, I guess, what the child is. And there's a lot of implications in this, you know, this world, which we will go on to later. But in this capitalist world, like that has huge ramifications in terms of ability, um, in terms of things yeah. like um, uh, insurance yeah. and things like that. So, I, and also with things like the genetic Sex, because um, all of those, I presume, would be genetic predisposition. Absolutely, it doesn't mean that somebody's going to. It was allergy. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of predispositions to allergy, right? Because we see. And it. I took the. I took it for twenty years before I had an anaphylaxis. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm with you, right? I'm with you. I think that there are, and that's what I'm saying. Like we kind of just treated it like it was a bit of fun, and then it was like, oh, wake up, call. How might this be used? So my daughter is African. Another is African. I'm blue-eyed Northern European, she carries a blue-eyed gene, right? But she doesn't have blue eyes. And I think that's a good analogy for people to think about. It's just because you have the gene, it doesn't mean it's expressed in any way. And so this um, is a huge issue I think we're going to have to face though around genetic counselling and around what what does it mean, you know, do you get excluded from insurance or um, never have been able to take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory because I had a marker for it or, you know, well I guess I'm saying is that I think that there are some areas here that time will start to free us up to go, oh, should we investigate that? Now, the ethical questions are the questions, you know, I have a big ethical question about whether or not I should be able to use, you know, some or not, right, or um, diclofenac or not. It's not really a big ethical question, but it is a big ethical question about what I want to have children or not if I knew I had a particular thing that, that either isn't expressed but that I might pass on. And so I think this is this thing, again, that we make it all bad or all good. And it's not all bad or all good. There are going to be ways of making commodity healthcare cheaper. And what do you mean by commodity healthcare? I mean that kind of almost the ad version you were talking about, right? The I come in, I get the thing, I'm moved on. You know, to convey about right, right. rush to health. That is going to get cheaper. Now the it could get more accessible or it may get more crappy. Who knows? You don't know. And then at the top end, um, I'm able to do these very, um, they're cheap or not, but just the accessibility of some of these diagnoses or diagnostic tools becoming easier is a good thing. If you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. One last topic, because I yeah. know you're like running out of time. Yeah. Um, so, capitalism. I'm going to bring you back. But, initial um, thoughts like, Capitalism. So if you're, uh, you know, a director of like some big companies, right? So like, if, if capitalism is like your job. What do you think about capitalism? <laughs>
It's not often I feel speechless. It's like a curious thing, isn't it? It's sort of that one of those ones where it's the best system we've got, but we know it's not a particularly good system or something. You know, I feel like capitalism has driven a whole lot of innovation and has driven a whole lot of curiosity uh, and, and art and design as well. You know, about patronage, let us have the Sistine Chapel and a whole lot of those things. We also know that it's killing the planet. And I think that, you know, I don't have an answer for this. I have philosophical questions. I don't really believe that conscious consumerism is going to save us, you know. And by conscious conscious consumerism, you kind of mean, I guess, I mean, this is something that my partner and I talk about all the time, with things like, you know, it's tick of approval, that tick of approval, it's um, is ethical, this is fair trade or whatever. Yeah. Because I think even within that system, it's flawed to a degree, yeah. right? Because it's like once one product has this tick of approval, then everyone else is like needs to get it as well. And then it becomes a commercialization of something that's supposed to be like an ethical this tick of approval. Look, I do think things should be more ethical. And I, I, you know, one, but I guess one of the companies I sit on, we pivoted to regenerative agriculture and we think that it's better for the planet. We think it's better for the animals. We think it's better for people who are going to eat that food. We think it is overall better, you know. Um, I think, and, and we get a better price for it. So, you know, using kind of capitalist levers, I guess, to encourage our farmers to do what they also know is the right thing that has turned out to be a good thing. For. Absolutely. But I, I, my question is more about, I guess, um, it's like a dilution, I mm-hmm. guess, of the, uh, the of these whatever ticks of approval because they become yeah, like a box greenwash too. Right? Exactly, exactly. Like and, a box ticking exercise. You know, um, I remember was it Milo or something when they got a um, heart tick and it was like you had to just halve the amount that they'd recommended using from two right. teaspoons to one teaspoon or something. I just find that cynical. Because yeah. in the last episode of the podcast that we did was with Professor Julia Rockledge, I thought about nutrition and the with mental health. And one of the things, profound, most profound things she was saying is that the health star rating in New Zealand, for example, it's more about what's not in the food than what's in the food. Wow. And so I, I think the growing cynicism of this system, because with the whole ethical consumerism, and I guess I want to talk a little bit more about capitalism and, because nobody really knows exactly where it came from, because nobody just invented it one day right it happened over time and i guess i'm trying to understand it more because <laughs> sometimes i'm like money is just made up <laughs> all of this like value people being billionaires it's all made up money and to a degree it's kind of it's made up money right because right. it's my understanding of capitalism is that to have capitalism you have to start with the credit system if you didn't have the credit system you didn't you don't have capitalism and that was probably one of the things that started it all off right the whole credit system of being like I'm going to borrow and these people are going to lend with the idea that the future is going to be better than it is now. Yeah. Right? And then, like, I will be able to pay back interest because this capital will allow me to invest in this, that, and the other to create more value in the future. And I guess, like, it was great at the time (laughs) before bringing, like, you know, industrial revolution where it's, like, all the things that we're doing, like, it's kind of extractive but not to a degree that is so damaging. And I guess um, we are now in kind of a late-stage-ish kind of capitalism and there are a lot of murmurings of especially young people and some would argue that the harder it is for us to buy our homes, the harder it is for us to invest in our you know, culture and our traditions and the more left-leaning people we become. And then I'm like, oh, if we come more and more left, do, do we go into the socialist, like communist kind of way? And I'm like, I don't 
know that that's the way to go either. And I guess I worry that if we don't fix things properly with the capitalism 2.0 or 3.0 version, that's more fair, we're going to get people going in that direction. Yeah. That's <laughs> so funny, isn't it? Like I'm reflecting back on, I think it was my first year at university, I'm, I think it was Engels and one of those um, on the history of money and thinking about exchange and how it really it came out of societies where different people had different labour and you had to be able to work that out. So if I was now a shepherd, I'm not growing any vegetables and you're, you're growing vegetables. And so do we swap a pumpkin for a leg of lamb or do we find some other ways? And we were reading all of that and um, finding it really kind of curious and interesting about how money works. You know, we, we have to think about how money works at the same time. What I would say is that one of the things like you're trained to do when you train as a futurist is to look back, to look forward. And systems have always kind of emerged and eventually fallen apart, but it hasn't been obvious what the next system would be before it fell apart. So if we think about serfdom, isn't that old, you know, the kind of feudal systems, whether it's in China or in France, you know, those feudal systems survived for a very long time. And I can imagine that when you were living under a feudal economy, the haves thought it was fine, you know. <laughs> I bet they did. Yeah, and the, yeah, the serfs did not. But probably hard for them to imagine that capitalism was going to be the solution to serfdom. And so I wonder if it's the same sort of thing, that if we're thinking about socialism versus versus capitalism, it feels like socialism was something that emerged in the 1900s as a solution to what was going on then. You can see that there are still countries like Vietnam where a sort of a socialist capitalist economy has actually resulted in some really great outcomes. You know, they have very high literacy, the healthcare is actually pretty good, very well in the pandemic, you know, not saying there are other things. I, I spent a lot of my life in Vietnam and there is still abject poverty and there is still a big difference between people who are, you know, living in tribal areas and people who have come from Viet descent and so on. So I'm not trying to be rosy about that. But I guess what I'm saying here is that capitalism has survived for a very long time. It's managed to morph itself into lots of forms. Socialism in a way felt like a reaction against capitalism, but that didn't necessarily mean that would be the thing that replaced it. So my sense is that whatever it is that replaces capitalism, there probably are green shoots off already, but we're not knowing where to look. But I can't see that capitalism can work forever. Just like feudalism didn't work forever, we're getting this greater and greater concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. At some point, their economic model falls over. You can't continue to get people to make money for you to buy their, your products if you can't afford them. You know, the minimum wage was largely created by Ford so that they could get people to buy their cars. And they realised that if their staff couldn't afford to buy their cars, they were in real trouble if they wanted to democratise the car. And so capitalism is very good at surviving, right? It finds ways of surviving. But I'm really concerned, I suppose, that you look at it at the moment, we've got the first trillionaire will surely be within the next couple of years. And being a billionaire seemed ridiculous, and yet we've got so many of them. So that at the same time... And it's time, a lot of imaginary money. It's a lot of imaginary money, but it's still, it's a lot of um, real people with nothing. 
And so whether you tell a real person who's hungry that it's only imaginary money that will get them out doesn't really help very much. So I wish I had an answer to this one. But I suppose I see that we may not even know, just like capitalism has been roots of for a long time. Um, I think what happens often too is that, and this is with my future settings on, is that whatever system we have at the time that we have it, we try to tell a story that it's natural to know that this is the only way that things could be. But there have been other ways in the past and there will be other ways in the future. And in the past, those systems seemed natural. Slavery was argued as natural, right? And so whatever the next kind of form of economic organisation emerges, there'll be a story about how capitalism was unnatural and whatever that system is the best. And at some point, it will collapse too. I think that's just sort of the human condition. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We have time for one last question. Okay. What is your guilty pleasure food or like activity or like film, TV? What's your biggest, deepest guilty pleasure? I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure, but I um, I love having a bodily experience. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what I meant by that? Because, you know, I think a lot about AI, and I think part of the problem about AI is that I don't believe that there is a brain that contains a mind. I do believe that the body has its intelligence and that, you know, we know from evidence too that a whole lot goes on in the gut and everywhere else. So for me, and I really enjoy, like, swimming particularly. I enjoy the rhythmic meditative, if I had a spare hour, I would rather be in the harbour than anywhere else, you know, like I just love being in the sea. Um, Do you guys have a better water quality over there? No, I I still need to look up poo-free or the minimum of poo, you know. I risk an orange poo level in the Wellington Harbour, which I am prepared to do, but I'm not prepared to risk a red. But yeah, so I love that. Also, I practice yoga and again, I really, as I got older, maybe it is a guilty pleasure. When I was younger, I felt like I couldn't take time for myself, that it was a bad thing somehow, that if I was, if I had to choose between being with my family or doing something for me, I always chose being with my family. But these days, I just thoroughly enjoy um, and yoga. And then the other thing is that, like, I my really guilty one is I fly way too much. I know that flying's not good for the planet, but it's still, like, one of the best things is being together. And um, what I most like about flying is I carry books, actual hard copy books. And so I have way too many books that I own that I'll never read. And that's probably a bit of a guilty pleasure too. Yeah, so so swimming and flying. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. Thank you. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.